Hello everyone and welcome to the show. In case you haven't tuned in before, my name is Julia Bendis. I'm a matchmaker and relationship coach for singles as well as couples and my website is matchbyjulia.com. Over the last 15 years or so, I have interviewed many guests, mainly experts in the field of matchmaking and dating. Well, some were experts, others just call themselves experts, but we won't talk about it right now. And I have been interviewed by various publications, podcasts, and radio shows, as well as interviewed my own special guests. However, I decided to open the podcast up to all of you past and current clients, future potential clients, singles, couples, and anyone who would like to discuss their own experience in the dating arena, your struggle with online dating, dating in general, as well as to offer singles a chance to share their story and a possibility to meet a great partner who might be listening. Some names will be changed to protect the privacy of the guest, but some will be sharing their real names. You can lend your voice, your experience as a couple, or as someone who's looking for love to share the good, the bad, and everything in between as it pertains to relationships, online dating, dating during this crazy time of COVID-19 pandemic, race, racism, and how it affects dating, and the struggles that everyone is experiencing this whole 2020 year. We all know how difficult and stressful this year has been. All of your stories will help others, not to mention the sheer therapy of just talking about it will benefit you as well. I'm also working on my second book called Confessions of a Matchmaker, where your feedback, stories, and experience will be invaluable. And again, all names and ages will be changed. So if you'd rather stay anonymous, it will be highly respected. If you would like to be considered as a guest for this podcast, please reach out and share with your friends who might benefit from listening or being a guest. The website again is matchbyjulia.com. And don't forget to order your copy of my new book called No Smiling Aloud, Growing Up in Soviet Russia, and other funny stories from a Jewish immigrant. I thank you for listening, and I hope you truly enjoy it and benefit from it. Welcome back, everyone. As you know, I'm broadening out my topics to include people discussing their life experiences, whatever it may be, and important issues like mental health and illness, addiction, recovery, and how they affect relationships, all relationships. So there's absolutely nothing more important than mental health, especially right now during the coronavirus pandemic. My very funny and very special guest today is Scott. Uh, And, you know, they say that all funny people, comedians, get their material from a traumatic past or pain of some sort. Well, I can't really say that I fully believe that, but there's definitely some truth to it because he's funny. Scott's a single man in his early 50s. He's here to talk about his harrowing life experience with mental illness as a recovering addict aspiring writer, poet, and healer. After all, we can only heal others when we have healed ourselves, although that sometimes becomes a life journey. So let's just get to it. Welcome, Scott. I'm so glad you're here. Well, thank you very much, Julia, and thanks for having me on the show and the introduction. Um, I hope I can live up to those words. (laughs) The The mental illness and the addiction, yeah, if I'm funny or not, well, we will see. <laughs> we will see. You are. They'll just take my word for it. So Yes, they better laugh. Yeah, and hopefully this is to inspire others to, you know, not only seek help, but to turn their life around and um, in whatever way we can help. So I would love to have you talk a little bit about your background, your life, and where you are now, and we'll just take it from there. Okay. I mean, I won't, I won't spend too much time going way back, but I'll start. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. And as you know, I grew up in a suburb called Beechwood. And for the rest of the world who doesn't know about Beechwood, it's a small, very sheltered community. When I grew up there, it was 95% Jewish. It was upper middle class. I always say 99.9%, but 95 is probably more accurate. Yeah, I mean, you're probably closer, but um, 
it was extremely sheltered and certainly didn't prepare me for the real world, that's for sure. Um, you know, I had everything I needed and everything I wanted as a kid. And, you know, looking back at it, that's not necessarily such a great thing. At the time, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I get everything I want. But, right. you know, that can, that can lead to problems down the road. What um, I was just going to say, do you think that that contributed to your path with, you know, addiction, drugs, and um, I think I think it was part of it. I think because of that upbringing and as sheltered as it was, at some point in time, and I can't tell you when, I made this decision that I sort of wanted to branch off of that and get off that path and go see what else the world has. And you want to call it rebelling or what have you. It's like I was going to do things differently than. You, there's that number 99.9% .9 of the people that grew up in beach would do. Yeah. And it, right. it just led me down a, you know, pretty, pretty dark path eventually. Really? So t tell our listeners, I guess, do you remember the first time that you, you knew you had a problem, I guess, or is that, you know, my, my view of um, addiction is pretty limited, my knowledge. So is there a time where you kind of realize that, oh, I may have a problem. This isn't quite just drinking with my buddies or, you know, going out and I have to have this much alcohol or whatever drugs, you know, you were doing. Right. Um, it took me a long time to discover I had an issue. I mean, I drank and only drank from age 17 through 36. Wow. And, you know, started like a teenager starts. I went to college. I went to the University of Michigan. I drank there and I thought it was normal because that's what yeah. college kids do. I came back to Cleveland. I started a career. Life was pretty normal. Drinking was always part of my social activities, however, but, you know, I was able to, to function and live life and it didn't become a problem. Mm -hmm. Where things really switched for me, we're fast forwarding to 2001 and I was 36 years old. So in the addiction world, I was a late bloomer. <laughs> And wow. if that's, is that a thing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're going to bloom in addiction, <laughs> which, you know, is sort of contradictory, right. but, um, yeah, I, I waited to, you know, to my petals started flourishing and until I really bloomed because <laughs> in 2001, I did my first illegal substance. I took a line of cocaine wow. and I sw swear to God from whatever day it was in 2001, that set me, really set me off into the path of addiction, which I battled from 2001 really up through 2019, we'll say. So it was another, even though I had drank from 17 to 36, now I'm 36, I'm adding illegal substances to the mix, and it's another 18-year, 19-year battle with addiction and with different wow. substances. and. Um, it got crazy. I actually had a counselor and I've been to many treatment facilities and we can certainly talk to about that. Mm -hmm. I had a counselor who called me a serial drug addict, mm -hmm. meaning I would do a drug until I either killed it or it almost killed me. Wow. And I'd sort of go to treatment, try to get help for that, leave treatment, start another substance same thing until I either killed it or it almost killed me. And wow. that was a cycle I was in for a number of years. When well, that was my question, was it pretty consistent or was what there are big chunks of time where you were clean? I guess when you talk about going to a treatment facility, that was, those were the times, right? When you weren't. And that was probably what, two weeks, a month, maybe? How long? Um, yeah. I mean, the, the treatment facilities I went to, a couple of them were 30-day programs. Mm -hmm. One was a 45-day program. And I can tell people out there as a recovering addict, that is not long enough. 
to, to go to treatment and then let, you know, be let back out into the real world. Right. Because in 30 to 45 days, you're just starting to even have the fog cleared, let alone be able to focus on what you need to do to maintain your sobriety. Mm -hmm. So the first time I went to treatment was in 2009, and that was for alcohol. Finally, after all those years of drinking, alcohol finally caught up to me. I had a couple consequences. I had a DUI. Mm -hmm. I flipped my car in the middle of winter on a freeway and totaled it and walked out scratch free. But I, you know, I was lucky. That was, that was God looking over for me. So at that point, and those two instances happened within two months of each other. Mm-hmm. So at that point I realized and with help of a professional that I had a drinking problem. So I went into treatment for drinking and this was, it was an outpatient program. I did it for six months. And so over that time, including the six months of treatment, I had a year year of complete sobriety. So that was the first. So again, we're talking 2009. So I was 44 years old. So that was really the first time in my life that I had any sober time put together. And what, so you're out, and you said it was a year that you were sober. Yeah, from 2009 to 2010. And then what happened? um, Well, then the addict in me, as I like to say, I was living in an apartment building, and this is back in Beechwood, which is surprising. Yeah. I was living in an apartment building, and I met this woman who cleaned apartments in in the building, and somehow she sniffed it out. She knew somehow I I was an addict. She must have had this super sense or whatever. And she offered me a couple Percocets and for no good reason, I took them from her and I took them mm-hmm. and I liked them, of course, because that's how my addict brain works. And so that set me off and running on a path of Percocets are considered opiates. If people know what opiates are out there. Well, we have um, a huge problem in this country. Yeah, that's true. I shouldn't say people. People know, yeah, people know what opiates are. Right. So this woman was pretty smart. She gives me a couple of Percocets. I like them. And then she, as it turns out, she was my dealer. I started buying them from her. Wow. Was she, was she using too, or was she just uh, selling to whoever? As far as I know, she was just selling. Wow. And I mean, I never saw her use. And so I was buying Percocets from her for about six months or eight months. Mm. And after that, they just weren't doing the trick. So then she introduced me to what's called Oxycontin, mm-hmm. which is a lot stronger than Percocets. And I think I got Oxy- that after my C-sections. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. They, they were, they worked. I mean, you know, when you have to giants nine pound babies they definitely work you know you don't feel anything but then i can see how it becomes you need it you need it you just need not because what what do they do i mean explain to people like me is it just not to feel anything is it a high is it both um it's really a combination of both Mm -hmm. certainly when you start on any of these opiates it's a high there is no doubt about it um, you know, I don't know if when you took them, obviously you're taking them to get rid of the pain mm-hmm. and what opiates do, do is they really go under your pain receptors in your brain and they block the pain. So it's masking your physical body is still, you know, you had all your organs, right? Removed and put back in. From what I understand. Stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's my limited understanding of what you went through. Right, right. From what um, I hear and the video that I never watch, but I hear that's what happens during a C-section. You know, my oh, God, well, yeah, nine yeah. pound babies. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a video I wouldn't want to see. Either. No, no. Yeah, I think no. we may have recorded some Cleveland uh, sport over half of one. You know, I'm sure not by accident because that's what happens, right? <laughs> when you marry to a, a Cleveland 
person. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm surprised he would even let you video over a Cleveland sporting event. No, no, no. He recorded the Cleveland event oh, for this I, section. Or now, this see, that makes sense to okay. me. Now that I understand. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. But right. anyway, I know we're, we're making light of this, but we're not. This is serious, you know, but go, go on, tell finish the you know what happened. yeah so you you definitely get high on these opiates right um they certainly though do opiates or depressants so mm -hmm. basically they're turning down the central nervous system so you really don't feel you don't feel emotion and the thing is once you let's say you're taking them because you're sad or angry and you don't want to feel that well once you turn off one emotion like this you turn them off all of them off so you're turning off anger and sadness, but you're also turning off happiness and joy. So you really don't feel, but you do get that, you know, you get that high, you get that head buzz or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, again, the thing with opiates is they're extremely addicting and you get addicted to them quick. And so if you don't have them, depending how long, you know, like Oxycontin could last four hours, six hours, eight hours, depending on the dosage you take. But as soon as they start wearing off, that's it. Start, yeah, that's it. You start going into withdrawal. So you need them pretty much immediately because you feel like shit. Yeah. So I was on Oxys for a year and I was buying them from the same lady who introduced me to Percocets. Jeez. And and then Oxycontin became very expensive and I was having a hard time finding them. Mm -hmm. So the next step, and this is a natural path for a lot of opiate addicts out there, was heroin. Because wow. heroin was plentiful. You could find it anywhere. It was a lot cheaper than Oxycontin. It's stronger. It does the trick. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does what you want it to do. Well, like, let, me, like a, let me ask you this before we, you know, talk about that. What, what, in the meantime, you're still working, right? You're still trying to maintain a job at this point, right? Or were you not working? Because how is that affecting your, your work and trying to make an income? Well, here's the funny thing about that. In 2009, when I was, when I told you I first went to treatment and I stopped drinking, mm -hmm. I was unemployed. I was collecting unemployment, but I was looking for a job. Mm -hmm. And then in 2010 is when I started on the Percocets and became addicted to them, still looking for a job. So finally, in the summer of 2010, I received uh, an interview invitation from the Cleveland Clinic, mm -hmm. which is a world-renowned hospital, oh, yeah. hospital system here in Cleveland. Right. So, you know, this is a great opportunity for me, but now I'm hooked on Percocets yeah. and I know a couple of things. I mean, no, I know one, I'm going to go into this interview and I'm going to need Percocets in me because oh. I'd rather be high than what we call dope sick. I couldn't go into the interview dope sick. They would know I'm sick and whatever. Yeah. Then if I got past the interview process, working for a healthcare, uh, company organization they were going to do a complete physical and a drug test right so i went to the interview i had taken my percocets that morning wow. but by this time you know again i had been on them 10 months and this is nothing to be proud of but they really were just allowing me to maintain and function i really wasn't getting high or loopy off of them because i had built up tolerance mm-hmm so I go to the interview. I thought I did well. A few days later, I get the call. They want to make me the offer. Wonderful. Wow. You got to go schedule this interview and drug test. Oh. So oh it was about two weeks out. And now I'm trying to figure out, okay, how the hell am I going to do this? And how am yeah. I going to pass the drug test? So I did my best. I sort of weaned myself off the Percocets. I knew I needed about 72 hours of being completely off of them mm -hmm. to pass the drug screen. Is that how long it takes to leave your body if you're regular? Yeah, I mean, that's the opiates. That's the minimum, they say. It's like mm -hmm. 72 hours and you can sort of flush them out. You probably need a little longer, four or five days. Mm -hmm. um, so like I said, I did my best to wean off of it. It wasn't a lot of fun. 
I bet. But I did, I did give it the three or four days I needed where I didn't take anything, went past the physical, got the job, started in September of 2010. By this time, I was back on the Percocets, and I was, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I was carrying this little black pill bottle in my pocket with Percocets with me, on me, to work at the Cleveland Clinic, you know, this wonderful healthcare organization, and I'm going in there, you know, yeah. addicted to opiates. Oh, my God. I was going to ask about that. Have you ever had... Uh, a time where someone caught you, saw you, thought maybe, you know, you're taking something, you're on something. Has that, did that ever happen while you were there, while you were working there? Surprisingly, not in the work environment. Really? And it shocked me because there were days, there were days I would go to work and I would be, you know, I'd take my last Percocets or probably Oxycontin in the morning. And by afternoon, I was really going through it. And I was wow feeling sick and looking pale and sweating. And I remember a couple times, and this is early on at the clinic, and it got worse from here. But a couple times I went to my supervisor and, was, you know, right after lunch, mid-afternoon, said, look, I don't really feel well. Can I go home for the rest of the day? And she let me, and I left there and went straight to the dealer's house. I wasn't going home to rest right. I needed to get what I needed yeah wow and how long did that last before you had you went back into a treatment facility um so that lasted through like I said the Percocets were 2010 mm -hmm. the Oxys were probably late 2010 through 2011 it's when I started on the heroin Wow. And when I started on the heroin, it only took me about three or four months. I say only, but mm -hmm. it took three or four months where I knew I was in big trouble and I, I had no answers. I had no way out mm -hmm. and I knew I needed help again. So luckily working for the Cleveland Clinic, Mm -hmm. You know, they had this whole employee assistance program right. where you could go to a counselor and everything was confidential. So I did that, went to the counselor, told them what's exactly what's going on. So, you know, they give you time off, FMLA or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I went to detox. They had to detox for a week to get off the heroin. Wow. You know, they use, they use medications to help you through. Mm -hmm. the dope sickness and the withdrawal and all that. So I did a week of that. And then I started with an outpatient treatment program through the clinic, which was the first two weeks were five days a week, eight in the morning till eight at night. Gee. And then that's wow. called a partial hospitalization program. Mm -hmm. And then after that was a three or four month program, which they call intensive outpatient where you go four days or nights a week for about three hours each. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I was off of work for the week of detox, the couple of weeks of PHP, the partial hospitalization. And then once I started the intensive outpatient, I was able to do that at night. So they let me go back to work. Oh, and wow. Now we're into, we're into like the winter of 2012. Um, at that point, you know, at least for those couple months, I was opiate free, hadn't been taking any other substances. So I went back to work and I actually stayed clean for about 18 months mm -hmm. and then things got bad again. Really? So yeah. it will come back to that. But so in the meantime, what, what is that doing to your relationships? What is that doing to people around you? How has that been? Because I, I'm assuming you've lost a lot of friends. You've lost relationships. You've, you know, loved ones, partners. How has that affected them? Obviously, you know, your family, parents, siblings along this whole journey. Yeah. I mean, the, the disease of addiction and it, it is a disease and People can go and look it up if they need to. It's considered a disease and it's in the medical journals and what have you. But the disease of addiction, it does not, certainly does not only affect the addict. Mm. It, 
their loved ones for sure, and we're talking family and immediate family, they become sick as well. Okay? Yeah. They're not using substances, but they get a lot of the same symptoms mm-hmm. of addicts because they're living through it. They're just observing it from right. the outside looking in. And obviously, you know, I come from a right. I come from a small, immediate family. It's my parents who are both still living, thank goodness. And I have a sister three years younger. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, they're looking at their son and brother. And seeing what I'm going through and seeing the struggles and not much they can do about it, even though they want to help. Mm -hmm. So it affects them as well. Now you mentioned, you know, we'll go to friends next. I mean, because you and I have known each other and I grew up with your husband. Yeah. You know, I had a lot of friends. We had a group that grew up together here in Beechwood. Mm-hmm. And went to high school together, and we all went our different ways to college. Some came back to Cleveland, some like your husband didn't, but we all stayed in touch. And we, the ones who came back to Cleveland, you know, I was close with and associating with, and we're doing fantasy football together, you know, all kinds right. of things. Yeah. And then when my addiction really started back in 2001, like I told you, I started basically disappearing. I wasn't around because I was, I was solely focused on my addiction and where it was taking me and all my friends, very good people, you know, they were moving on with their lives. They were getting married. They were having kids, careers, houses, similar to the path you and Scott took. And I'm this single guy out here, you know, using dope. Struggling. Yeah. Yeah. The, The two don't mix. Mm-hmm. And even the friends who tried their best to stay in touch with me, and you were one of them. I mean, so you know what happened. Yeah. So if I'm in if I'm in active addiction, I'm not going to be reaching out to you. Right. I'm probably not going to answer your calls because I don't want to talk about what's going on. Um, and plus, it's it's such a selfish disease. I'm out there just worried about taking care of myself and getting what I need. You're feeding your need, your needs. Yeah. And we should mention that you were married. You got married fairly young, right? Um, Do do you think part of it was due to, you know, your addiction or was that still kind of early on and you weren't really using, maybe just drinking? Do you think any of that had to do with your marriage not working out or were there other issues in the relationship yeah there there were a few factors now and really luckily for her i i hadn't started into my addiction when we got married i got married in 1995 i was 30 Mm -hmm. and from start to finish the marriage lasted less than two years but do you think there was still uh because it doesn't just happen overnight right i mean i think do you think there was still some kind of an addiction, but with other things? Do you think there were other issues that you were dealing with as well before? Because I, I can't imagine that addiction or alcoholism, it just happens overnight, right? And, and, you know, I might be totally naive about this and totally ignorant. So, you know, educate me. No, you're absolutely right. Alcoholism and addiction happen over a long period of time Mm. and and i'm an example of a person who portrayed a lot of alcoholic or addictive behaviors and character traits long before i was an addict because like i said i didn't really pick up illegal substances till i'm 36 but like you said i didn't wake up one day at 36 years old and become an addict and have all these bad traits and character defects. We like to call them. Yeah. Um, those develop have, over to- you know, people have addictive personalities and I don't care who it is. You know, we all have our issues and our vices. Right. So I'm just wondering if you knew that was your personality, if you knew that there were other issues and, you know, before going, going into the actual drug and alcohol, you know, um, 
you you know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, like I said, the alcohol, the alcohol was a slow process. I started at 17 Mm -hmm. and I didn't really become a heavy drinker to probably late twenties, early thirties. Now, let me tell you when I got married and then figured out real quickly, I didn't want to be in that situation and I shouldn't have done it in the first place. I mean, for that, those two years we were married and then even after when I went through the divorce, I mean, I was drinking like a fish Yeah, because well, I, didn't, I didn't know how to cope mm-hmm. with the entire situation. One, I married a woman. I, she was a nice enough woman, but she, look, she was a, a Jewish woman who grew up in Beechwood too. Yeah. So, you know, people, my sister set us up. It started off going well. The families liked it. Everybody thought, oh, this is a great match. You know, two Jews so grew up in Beach. <laughs> yes. On that's exactly what happened. Yeah. I rode this train with everybody because everybody else was happy and thought this was the greatest thing. So I'm thinking, well, it must be, right? I mean, this must be meant to be. Right. When somewhere inside me, I knew it wasn't right. And I knew it wasn't, I wasn't happy. And I knew I wasn't in in love with her even though she's a good kind-hearted person Mm -hmm. um so you know i never should have even taken it through the whole engagement process and but i did i got caught up in it and and that's a huge thing not to interrupt you but that's a huge thing that i talk with my clients about in fact i just had this conversation last week with someone who told me that she wants to marry within her culture because her culture is everything. And it's the same with us, I think, too, right? And you just go along with whatever your parents think, your family think. And she said, you know, my culture is very important to me. Our gatherings, our parties, for him to understand my culture, how we are, my religion. And that's always my question to them. You know, are you marrying someone to fit into your culture and into your life? Or are you marrying someone because you want to marry that person? You know, I think a lot of times, like with you, you just get caught up in all that, you know, hoopla or whatever, you know, and you just go with it when in reality, is it, is it right for you? Probably not, you know, so. Right. No, that, that's an excellent point. And, and that's certainly where I got to, because to be honest, prior to her, I had never dated a Jewish girl in my life. Really? Oh, yeah. That's- I was always dating non-Jews. Now, again looking back was i doing that on purpose because like i said earlier Mm. i wanted to try to break that path that sort of set out for us growing up in beachwood and in this sheltered community yeah i don't know if i was consciously or subconsciously doing that because again most most of our friends dated and or married jewish women and that was just the way it was supposed to be So like I said, prior to her, I only dated non-Jewish women Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, all of a sudden, because it's interesting because you went away and you saw, you probably were kind of maybe in a, you know, not shock, but to see other cultures, to see other religions, to see other people from other parts of the country and the world. I'm sure that was kind of, you know, like an eye opening moment to to come out of such a sheltered community right oh it was very eye-opening i mean just you know going off to college at age 18 there's about thirty-five thousand students up in michigan and some of them when i first met them in the dorm they had never met a jewish person in their lives (laughs) wow and they really they thought you know almost literally thought where's your horns and tail i mean you know who (laughs) What do we, I don't, we never met a Jewish person. Right. And, you know, I'm thinking on the other hand, all I've been around my whole life are Jewish people for the most part. Right. And now, like you said, I'm meeting all cultures, all religions, all different backgrounds from all around the country. And it took me a while to adjust up there. I, I was like a deer in the headlights kind of thing. Right. I bet there's a lot of interesting questions, you know, or the one about how... What, what do we do on Christmas? We drink blood of a non-Jewish person or something. I don't know. Maybe it's Passover, whatever that, that whole thing going around, you know? I've got oh, those yeah. questions. Do you really do that? 
yes, we take a child that's, you know, non-Jewish and, you know, we cut his throat and we drink his blood. Yes. <laughs> right. We're Whatever. very Isn't thirsty. It, yeah. I'm like, wasn't that something like, where, where do you come up with that? You know, how do you come up with that stuff? Or the other one was, you know, um, well, you know, I know you're Jewish, but you still celebrate Christmas, right? Oh, I got that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's how that works. Yeah, but you see right. Jesus, right? So I think there's just, we could talk about that for hours, you know, and that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> right. You know, there's just so much miscommunication and it, it's so good to see that people want to get out of that bubble, you know, like just with me having two boys, I want them to get out of their bu bubble. I want them to see other people and meet new cultures and new, new cuisines and new everything. So uh, but so you, where, where did we leave off? So you went down that path with heroin and what, what happened then? I mean, you went to rehab, you went back to work or it wasn't rehab. It was an outpatient. Right. Right. And then what happened after that? Were you able to work? Were you able to maintain, you know, your sobriety and how long did that last? Yeah, for, during that period of time, I maintained my sobriety for 18 months. Yeah. And what I did is I was finally introduced to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't know much about it, to be honest with you. I had heard about it in the past, but hadn't really participated. Even when I gave up drinking in 2009, I didn't really go down that AA path. Yeah. But going through this outpatient in the, at the clinic, they introduced you to it. You actually, for the intensive outpatient portion, you actually had to go to a certain number of AA meetings per week and get this piece of paper signed to prove you were there. Mm. Um, so I started working the AA program, which is a 12-step program. And at some point, we can certainly get more in depth than that. But yeah. You know, I, I was going to meetings. I got myself a sponsor. I started working those 12 steps and it was working and life was getting good. I mean, I was feeling better, substance free. I was working again. What um, happened? I, I was meeting new people. Well, I'll tell you what happened. And I don't know why the 18th month arc is it, but at 18 months, a couple of things happened. Number one, I started to say to myself, you know what? Your whole life now is AA. Mm -hmm. All the people you socialize with, the meetings you go to, everything's AA. I have no balance. I have work and I have AA. I have work and I have AA. So that sort of started to mess with my mind. And the second thing was, you know, this is the longest stint of sobriety I had. I got very complacent. Mm. Like, oh, I'm like feeling good. You can right, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's why this disease of addiction is really, it's, we call it a thinking disease, a mental disorder, mm -hmm. because the disease itself starts talking to you in your head and saying, okay, Scott, look, you've done it for 18 months. You've stayed clean. You've done everything you're supposed to do. Yeah. Right. Things are, you know, life is good, but you still miss that little bit of excitement and the drama and the chase and all that, don't you? And going and, out and partying and yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, like I said, at the 18 month mark, um, I relapsed again. I think it was heroin at the time. Wow. Um, Is it really and, that available? I guess when you're looking for it, you'll find it, right? That's all you really need is to look for it. Cause I can't, I can't even imagine like where to go to find something like that. But if you have the connections, if you know people, right. Right. I mean, that's part of the problem is being an addict and then trying to be in recovery. You've yeah. lived however many years in this addictive lifestyle and you meet a lot of people in that world, whether they're dealers or other addicts or what have you. So one thing that teach you in treatment and they teach you in AA is that if you really want to stay clean, you have to change everything in your life. And we're talking people, places, and things. Mm -hmm. You got to get rid of all the old people you associated with, the places you used to go to, whether it's bars or certain streets where you used to 
me. You know, dope dealers, right? Places, you know, everything in life has to change, and that's a that's a big undertaking for anybody. I mean, most people, and I'm certainly one of them. I don't love change; it makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah. Now they're telling me after a couple decades of doing what I was doing, I just this is a simple program. You just got to change every fucking thing in your life. (laughs) Okay, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So after having been in that world. You know, I still knew where to go or who to contact, uh, you know, to get what I, you know, I needed. Now, you know, like you said, a lot of people like yourself and other people we know and I grew up with, if I called them today and said, you know, could you get me some heroin? They would think I'm crazy. They would have no idea even where to start or where to look. And that's a good thing. So, so the lesson here is basically you, you literally have to start a new life. You have to get, get a new phone number. You have to delete, you have to block people. You have to move. I mean, otherwise how, how can you fight that addiction and fight that, you know, it's almost beyond you, right? When you know where to go to get it and all you have to do is just walk down the street but if you move and start over somewhere else, do you think that helps? Or do you think you really just have to get yourself under control and start going to meetings and having someone to, uh, you know, someone not responsible for you, but someone you have to answer to, right? Like a sponsor and follow right. you, kind of system, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's why the AA and the 12 step programs work because mm-hmm. they give you a certain structure to follow it gives you a lot of accountability and accountability is huge in this whole thing. Right. That's the other thing I failed to mention at 18 months, you know, I'm living by myself. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I'm only accountable either to myself or if I want to reach out to my sponsor or my family, I could do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a single guy at that time, I said, well, I can go get away with this and no one's really going to know. And that's right. what I did. But, um, No, you're absolutely right. You need, you know, that's why you're supposed to have a sponsor from the day you enter AA to the day you leave this planet. You're supposed to always go to meetings and and just... That's your life. And that's where, you know, you have to almost kind of like ingrain it in your head. Well, this is my life from now on, right? This is not something that I can stop tomorrow and think I'm all right. I've done enough. I'll be okay, right? You, you right, have absolutely. to continue. You, you just can't. You can't stop. And, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about, what we said about family. And, um, you know, you said something to me uh, the other day was that, which I always thought, you know, as, you know, I've never had um, that addiction. I mean, I'm sure I've had others, you know, because people have their own, you know, issues and vices and whatever. But to me, I would think that the first person you want to turn to is your family and your family will will always be there to help you. But you actually said it's better, you think, now that you've gone through this so many times and, you know, that wasn't the end to it. And we can talk about that, you know, next time. But you, you said the best thing that family can do is to cut you out of your life, of their life, right? And just, yes, that, that has been my experience, absolutely. Why do you say that? Why do you think that? Uh, and how did that help you? Because what happened for, for the years up until, again, I didn't really get clean until last summer slash winter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've still been battling this all the way through right. 2019. Yeah. And what happened from 2001 all the way through there is like you said, my family, especially my parents, they were always there for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. They always supported me. You know, that certainly they were happier when I went to treatment and they saw that I was trying to do the right things to try to battle this and overcome this. Right. But where it always went wrong is when I was in active addiction and it was really more my dad than my mom. Cause my dad and I are extremely close. We're like best buddies and I'm his only son. That's amazing. Yeah. Very protective and, you know, never wanted any harm to come to me and didn't want to see me in any pain. So over the years, he would basically enable me. 
he would be the one when I was really in dire straits, I would go to and either make up some story of why I needed some money or, you know, plead, beg, whatever it was. And I manipulated him. I mean, it's all on me. Wait, so he he actually, he knew that you were battling uh, with an addiction, but he believed whatever story you created, why you needed money. Like you, you really truly think that he didn't know what you were doing or he knew and you just couldn't watch you suffer. I think initially he wasn't overly sure. I mean, when, when I went to treatment those in 2012 and 13 that we talked about, they actually, they went to some groups and whatever to learn about addiction because they didn't know anything about it. They didn't understand it. They didn't know it was a disease and they did some research on it and that kind of thing. So they knew finally they understood what I was battling and I, I was an addict and I battled this thing. Mm -hmm. So initially when I would go to him for money early on, I'm not sure he knew what was going on later as time moved on. I'm sure he had to, he knew, but yeah, I would make up these stories about something my car broke down and I need money for that. And next week, something else on my car broke down and you well, know, whatever. You, yeah. And you hear how good people can get, you know, when they're an addict, you know, and they, how convincing they can be. I mean, you hear stories that, you know, people had no idea because they were so convincing about why they needed that money for and, you know, it wasn't obviously it wasn't because they needed to feed their addiction. Well, it was, but, you know, their story was so good that, you know, I think I would have fallen for that, too. You know, I just I, I can't imagine what your parents went through. And um, do you think at one point where well, I'm sure there was a point where they were just we're done, like we're just done, you know, do whatever well, you want. Did they cut you off finally and say you're on your own? Yeah, that that finally happened last summer, probably Mm -hmm. May or June of last year. And that's why, you know, that's why I say, and I'm now a proponent of the family cutting the the addict off completely. Mm -hmm. Because for me, after 20 years of battling these substances, that's what it took. They finally cut me off completely. They wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't see me. They certainly weren't going to give me money. They would not text me. I was out there on my own. Wow. If I ended up homeless, I'm homeless. Don't come to us. And wow. that, I've had a lot of rock bottoms in my life. And we can talk about them, like you said, another time. Yeah. But this, because wow. I was so close to my parents and my family, that was the bottom of all my rock bottoms. And I knew then that, I am now on my own and now I've lost the people who are closest to me and cared the most for me. I better do something to change my life and hopefully somewhere down the road, start to rebuild those relationships. And it was, it was about six months where I didn't speak with my family at all. And that's for a family like ours, that's completely unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, they came back to me even sooner than I expected. Really, I thought even though in those six months I got clean and I started to go to outpatient treatment again and uh, went lived in a moved into a sober house and was starting to do the right things. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if or when they were going to come back because they had been battling this for decades and decades. Well, this is worst... their life for two decades. Yeah. Yeah. So I get could... worst thing I heard, and I didn't mean to interrupt. That's fine. Was fi- the first person in my family who finally decided she would meet me and talk to me was my sister. Yeah. And I hadn't talked to her for probably two years or three years. It had been a long time. Mm-hmm. And so we finally meet, and I don't remember exactly when it was. It was last winter. But when she said to me, we're looking face to face, and she, she said to me, do you understand that over all these years when mom and dad would go to sleep and I would go to sleep, that we were expecting a phone call in the middle of the night that you were dead. You were dead, yeah. And so we were not, because of your addiction and your actions, we could not get a restful night's sleep. 
Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, when she told me that, I mean, you know, I felt so bad and so guilty it and so full you. of remorse. It really hit you. Yeah, that, that hit me. God, what have I done to these people for such a long period of time? You just, when you're in active addiction, you don't see it. You know, on you some level, you're affecting people, right? other people yeah you don't think about it because all you're thinking about is your next fix and how to get it and how to make yourself feel better how to you know get back to that feeling so it's completely understandable and it's just it my heart breaks for anyone that's going through that you know um and i think obviously there's so so much more to talk about and you know we'll have to continue this conversation uh, but I just, I wanted to ask you one other question was how, I, I'm surprised, obviously, how have you never been arrested? How do you think, which wh- wh- I don't think you have, have you? No, I, the only, the only arrest or quote, quote, breaking the law that I actually incurred was, like I said, I got one DUI in my time. Right. So, you know, they pulled me over two in the morning. I was obviously drunk. Yeah. I spent the night in the Beachwood jail, which is wow. sort of ironic that it happened in Beachwood. And yeah. You know, do they not have much a jail? Of, I guess they do. Right? Yeah, and the you know, in the police station they got two cells and <laughs> you know, there's there's nothing to sleep on. I mean you're sleeping on this hard bench and yeah. You and another Jewish uh, guy. <laughs> right, exactly. The two drunk guys who get caught in Beachwood on the same night. Oh. But that is one thing that of all the years of doing this and all the illegal activities I took part in, and that could just mean, you know, I have to go pick up my drug. So I have to drive with it in the car home, you know, right. so I'm driving with heroin or whatever. Mm-hmm. They say in, in these 12 step programs, they th- say one of three things happens to alcoholics or addicts and it's jails institutions or death those are the only three outcomes right i've been in plenty of institutions i've actually died three times and been brought back wow i've i've never been to jail which is crazy everybody else i talk to and everybody i meet in these programs i'm in and in aa they've spent time in jail because we're all doing illegal stuff well, that was that was why I was wondering. And do you think it was because of where you were, where you lived, that you didn't? Do you think it was because you had that white privilege, you know, so to speak, because you're a white man? I mean, you know, we can hide our Jewishness, you know, so they don't harass. The, the police doesn't harass us. But do you think it was partially because of that? Or were you just really, really careful and where you lived maybe too? Why do you think uh, that never happened? You know, I, I don't think it was because I was careful because I was not careful. Yeah. A lot of times I would go get my drug and I needed it so bad. I would do it right in the car in the middle of the day, wow. you know, out in public. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the cultural thing, I don't think it was that either because if you, you know, when we'll talk about Cleveland, if you see a white guy in Cleveland driving a halfway decent car, and I'm going to East Cleveland to a very African-American, black, poor neighborhood mm-hmm. and stopping on the street and waiting for something. <laughs> That's a dead giveaway. Right. I mean, a million times a cop could have rolled up and said, what are you doing here? And right. and that never happened to me. Huh. Um, That's, That's crazy. I, I look at it. And I know to some people it's going to sound silly. I just look at it that that was God looking over me. Right. I, mean, I had a lot of consequences with my addiction. I, for some reason, I wasn't meant to be in jail. And let me tell you, that's a good thing because a guy from grew up in Beechwood, Ohio, <laughs> I would did. not do very well in jail. Well, <laughs> you would do really well, you know. But yes, in like some regard, right. I would enjoy it, but I have a lot of stories. Right, that's for sure. That'd be a book right there, you know. But, wow. I mean, that is a book that is, you know, a movie. I think anyone that has gone through 
what you've gone through or anything similar, I think that's, you know, definitely, uh, it's fascinating, but it's so sad and it's just so, um, I heard for those around you as well and for you, you know, um, I'm just glad that you're here and you're healthy and you gotten the help and you're working on yourself. I mean, you know, I guess that's all you can do, right? Just one day at a time. And that's, that's exactly it. I mean, that's the mantra of AA and 12 step programs and people, you know, people initially when they come to AA, they think these mantras and cliches are silly, but it is all for any of us. All we have are t is today, right? Right. Tomorrow's not here yet. Yesterday's gone. All I got today. So if I can stay clean and sober today, you know, I've met my goal and we'll see if I wake up tomorrow, we'll try it again tomorrow. Let me tell you, in 2009, when I went to treatment for alcohol and they told me I could never have another drink mm -hmm. and that had been my whole social life, my, you know, basically my entire life as an adult. Right. I thought they were crazy. Mm -hmm. I thought there's no way I can go to a sporting event, a without concert, drink. right, without drinking. I said, how can you say forever? That's such a long time. And they said, yes, you're not allowed to have a drink from now to the end of time because it can lead to bad things, but you can't look at it like that. You just look at it that you can't have a drink or a drug today. That's right. all you got to do. And if you need to break it down into smaller increments, I can't have it for an hour, or, you know, three hours, whatever you need to do, whatever works for each individual. Um, because like, yeah, um, it's, it's too overwhelming for any recovering addict to think I've got to do this forever. Yeah. It, it literally is one hour at a time and one day at a time. And, but now, you know, right. That there's a reason why they say uh, you can't and you know yourself and you know that one drink, one, anything it, will just lead you right back to where you were. So I think as long as you remember that and, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful you're here. I'm grateful that you're doing well. And I really appreciate you sharing your story. And I think we should definitely next time talk about um, how this whole pandemic affects someone in your situation, you know, because you're all, I'm sure all of the AA meetings, NA meetings, all the meetings were canceled and people are finding themselves battling an addiction or trying to recover with nowhere to go, right? So I think we can definitely next time talk about that. I'm sure there's a whole, you know, hour of conversation on that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that would be an excellent topic because, you know, again, I'm early on in recovery. I'm coming up on eight months. So when the pandemic hit in March, let's say, you know, I was only about four months and I was just starting to get structure in my life and work this program and stuff. And then this pandemic comes and every and all of us addicts, whether we're or not, yeah, everything that we rely on and gives us accountability is now closed. Now what do we do? Right. And I know that there's been a lot of relapses during it's very sad but people you know they're alone and they're not in the fellowship and whatever they need that they get from the program you know the one thing i say that didn't shut down during the pandemic were dope dealers <laughs> yeah. right that's for sure and i think webcam girls they were doing really well you know oh i bet <laughs> Well, and that's a whole other subject. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely another topic. Yeah. And the one other topic that you had asked me about, we didn't get to, which I know because of what you do for a living, and I'd love to talk about it, is actual relationships as far as dating and significant others as an active addict. We sort of covered my family, and we covered friends, but we'll have to talk about you know relationships because when you're in addiction, at least for me, that was a whole different world than what I normally would do. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I have so many questions about that and how you maintain a relationship or what it does to your dating life, whether you're single or in a relationship. So, yeah. 
Well, I, I really want to thank you for sharing your story and for joining me today. It, it was a pleasure to talk to you and laugh with you, even though it's through the pain. But I think through the pain is how we kind of make it to the other side, right? So absolutely, you got to, or at least you know, for me, got to got to look at some of this and find some humor in it. Yes, it's extremely painful and it can be dark. But, you know, there's always a light at the other side, and um, you know, if you can bring a little bit of humor to it, and you know, hopefully somebody out there heard something that you know, might help them, but I greatly appreciate you having me on. And this, this was just an experience for me. Oh, well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you guys for listening and join me again. Join us next time. I will definitely talk more about all of this and other things, other important issues, including mental health and how it feeds into the addict's brain and Everything has to do with that. So thank you again, Scott, for joining me today. Thank you, Julia.